in the name of Jesus. Amen. Dear Saints, I've heard recently, in fact, a, a lot in the last month or so, of pastors, brothers in the office who were criticized for preaching too much about politics and culture from the pulpit. Now, I understand that criticism because when we talk about these things, we need to take extreme care and be very careful, especially when we're not able to say, thus says the Lord. The pulpit is not the place for human opinion. But the text that Jesus, that the Holy Spirit sets before us from Jesus indicates that we as Christians and as a Christian church ought to be able and be interested and be interpreting, these are the words that Jesus uses, interpreting the times. It's a, a part of our Christian calling. Now, how were the people that Jesus was preaching to missing the times? I think they were missing a lot of important political developments that were happening at the time, political developments which would lead to the complete annihilation and destruction of Jerusalem, which would happen only probably 37 years after the sermon. Jeru- not one stone would be left upon another in Jerusalem. Titus, the Roman emperor, or at least the uh, leader of the soldier, or the leader of the armies who would then become the emperor, was going to lead the uh, the, the Roman army into Jerusalem and just wiped the place out. And all, all of the, the wheels were turning that were going to result in that. And they, they missed it completely. The Jewish people missed it. But maybe even more importantly, they missed the fact that the kingdom of God was standing right there in front of them. They missed it that the Messiah who was promised by, by Moses and the prophets was standing in front of them preaching the kingdom. That He came to redeem them and rescue them and, and deliver them. And they just... They just missed it. They knew if the clouds were coming from the west, blowing in from the Mediterranean Sea, that the rain was coming. They knew that if the wind was blowing from the south over the desert, it was going to be hot, but they completely missed what was right in front of them. We want to ask the question also, what are we missing? Or maybe, maybe just, just say it better, that we would escape the accusation that Jesus gives in the text that we would be hypocrites. He, he wants us to also pay attention to the times, to interpret the present time. But this is a daunting task. I mean, how, how, would, you, how would you even think about it? I, I was uh, thinking through this a little bit this week. If you just, for example, try to understand where we are technologically, and that's a, that's a way to understand history. In fact, a lot of people want to understand history in terms of technology, and to, and to think how much things have changed in the last hundred years, and in the last year. You can sort of gauge uh, your own age and the generation that you're from by the technology that you remember coming into the house. Some of you, I don't think so anymore. I think this generation has passed. The generation that remembered when the house first got electricity. (laughs) It's not that long ago. And then the, the generation that remembers when the house first got the telephone. Or when the house first got the television. Remember that? Or when the television suddenly was not black and white but was color. Or when the first computer came into the house. Or do you remember signing up for your first email? That wasn't that long ago in the whole history of the world. Or getting your cell phone or, or signing up for social media? I, I looked just to see. Do you know that Facebook was 
founded in 2004. That's like a blink of the eye. And it, it's become almost ubiquitous in our own culture and our own, our own society. News came out, this is the technological thing that I think we'll have to face. News came out, I don't know, a couple weeks ago or a couple, summers, a couple uh, months ago that one of the techs in, uh, in Google leaked that uh, one of their artificial intelligence machines has developed self-consciousness and is afraid of being turned off. <laughs> I do not... I, I, that can't be good news. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, uh, in, in a way, it's almost overwhelming, the rate of technological change. We go, so so there's, the, there's the times we live in. But you could also think of it, in, I think, in morally. And I think this is probably the, the way that we, should, that we should try to understand the times in terms of ethics and morality. Again, we're, there's been massive shifts in what's considered right and wrong just in the last few generations. We're, we're living now uh, at, the, at the long tail of the sexual revolution and in the throes of the gender revolution, which has all been sort of conglomerated into a, a, a category of uh, LGBTQAI, maybe, should be added to it. I, I saw some t statistics, and I'll give you some even more in a, in a bit, but that uh, in 2012, which again is not that long ago, 2012, 3.5% of American adults identified as part of the LGBT community, and that last year, 2021, that number had more than doubled to 7.1% LGBT Q. But if you look at it generationally, it's really quite stunning. So here, this, here's some numbers. This is 2021 Gallup poll. If you're a, what's called a traditionalist, that means you were born before 1946. Some of you are going to dispute that and say, I was born way after that, but I'm a traditionalist. I know. If you were a traditionalist, the percentage of your population that identifies as LGBT is 0.8. If you're part of the baby boomers, that's 1946 to 1964, it's 2.6%. Generation X, 1965 to 1980, 4.2. The millennials, 1981 to 1996, 10.5. And Generation Z, that means those of you who were born between 1997 and 2003, it's 20.8%. That means, and, just, and if, if you're kind of astonished by that, like the further down you were on the list, the more astonishing the numbers are, right? <laughs> if you're in part of that generation, you say, yeah, that's pastor, I go to school, I see it, this is not a strange sort of thing. But that number also is astonishing. That, that Generation Z number of 20%, that's one in five of the generation uh, born then. That number three years ago was 10%. So to think about that, that the a number of people who would identify with the LGBTQ has doubled in that generation in three years. Now that's, a, that's astonishing numbers, really. And, it, and it's happening so fast. It's happening faster than anyone could have thought or could have imagined. 
It, it's gone from, you know, the question used to be, the, the sort of cultural driving question is, what do we think of marriage? What do we think of intimacy, the act of marriage, and so forth, and to whom does it belong? But it, it is very quickly morphed into a question of identity. A, a quote was given to me last week in Bible class. Jem mentioned a quote from the Obergefell decision, and I went and found it. I want to read it to you. I think this is just really… Remember what… So, Jesus wants us to be interpreters of the times. So, that's what we want to, that's what we want to try to do. So, here's just a paragraph from the Obergefell decision. This was June 2015. Choices about marriage shape an individual's destiny. Now, just, just that already, to think about that, marriage, which is where the two become one, is understood as an individual choice. And that's further highlighted here, as, as Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts has explained, because, quote, marriage fulfills yearnings for security, safe haven, and connection that express our common humanity. Civil marriage is an esteemed institution, and the decision whether and whom to marry Here's the, what I want you to pay attention to, is among life's momentous acts of self-definition. Now, that is an amazing thing. That, and, and this is, again, a Supreme Court decision that understands that the thing that the law cannot prevent or cannot stand in the way of is the individual's right of self-definition. The, 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 the language that is used for this is, uh, is plasticity in regards to personhood. I'll give you one more thing, and this will be the last thing I read. <laughs> but this is from a, a text called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by a thinker named Carl Truman. And he speaks of the plasticity of the identity and the, and the understanding that… W- that the sort of project of modern, of modern humanity, of the modern individual, is to define themselves. Here, here's how, how he, he writes about it. Yet while sex provides much of the content of the psychological man the ex- and the expressive individual of the present age, perhaps the most striking characteristic of today's understanding of what it means to be a human is not its sexual content, but rather its fundamental plasticity. Psychological man is also a plastic person, a figure whose very psychological essence means that he can, or at least thinks he can, make and remake personal identity at will. For such plastic people to exist and thrive, there must exist both a certain kind of metaphysical framework and a certain kind of society with a particular social imaginary. And this brings us to the next narrative strand which he wants to talk about. Now, the point is this. If you were to say, what's going on in our own culture? What's, what's happening out there? What, what, uh, what do things look like? What's the problem and what's the solution? Where did we come from and, and where are we going? We, we are now at a point to where the, the goal of the individual is to autonomously express their own self and their own identity. And this is miles away from what the Scripture talks about. So the ethics of our age. 
So technology, ethics, we could talk about politics, we could talk about foreign politics, we could talk about economics, which needs to be talked about, and, and it's not even mentioning the pandemic. In other words, Jesus sets us to this task of interpreting the times, but this is a somewhat overwhelming task, isn't it? And the times are confusing, at best confusing. So what do we do? How do we do it? I'll give you a couple things that I want to set before, not only just today, but as our approach as Christians living in a world which is growing farther and farther from the Word of God. Number one, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Jesus has not authorized you to be afraid of anything but Him. And then He comes and says, don't be afraid of me either. It might look to you like the world is falling apart. Maybe it is, but it's Jesus' world. He sits on the throne at the right hand of the Father, and none of these things are a surprise to Him. None of these things snuck up on Him, caught Him unawares. Jesus has appointed you to be alive and to live and to breathe and to speak and to hold forth conversation and to trust and to act and to work and to love in these days. So don't be afraid. And second, I think the best way to interpret the times is in fact to not look at the times themselves, but to look at the Word of God. Now here's the strategy. I call this the anti-catechism. I think I've talked to you about it before. And it's a kind of a complicated point. I want to try to simplify it as much as possible. And that is to know that when the devil is attacking something, he's always and can only attack those things which the Lord has created. The devil and the demons cannot create. The world cannot create. Your own sinful flesh cannot create. It can only destroy. So if the devil and the world and the flesh are attacking, they're attacking something that God made. Now, they might be attacking it from all different angles, from all different kinds of strategies and, and techniques and everything else, but, but for, to understand the attack, we want to look first at what's being attacked. And this is the way to be clear about things. For example... If you're being tossed around by the confusing questions about where we came from, were we created or did we evolve out of nothing, or if we're caught up into how we should act about, about this, this world and, 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 and the kind of swirl of, of fervor around climate activism and all that sort of stuff, if we could just simply look at what God has, has created, then there's clarity. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we stand on that. Or, or when it comes to what we're talking about when, with the ethics of both identity and morality when it comes to the sixth commandment, it, oh, there's all different attacks on it, from divorce to the hookup culture to, the, to, to reproductive technology to the whole thing, top to bottom. There's confusion about all of it. The, the simplicity lies in what the Lord has created, that, that He brought Eve to Adam and and said, here you two are married, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, and so forth. And, and that we look at this, that marriage and, and, and chastity are what the Lord has set into place, and we rejoice in the beauty of it. Or when it comes to questions of identity, and, and here's where it gets really tricky, when people are confused about who they are and how to think about themselves, we, we, we want to know this not only for ourselves, but also for everybody. When it comes to the question of who am I, I, I am who the Lord says I am. 
which means that I'm a sinner whose sins are forgiven by Jesus. That's my identity. That's how I think of myself. That's what orients me in the world. That's that's how I know what's true and what's unmoving, that the Lord's Word stands firm when everything else is out to sea. It's important for us to know this. Not, Not only is it important for us to know this about ourselves, but it's important for us to know this about the world around us as we interpret, as Jesus says, as we interpret the times. Because it doesn't look like it's going to get any better. It doesn't look like the world is going to be any, uh, any better at confessing creation or marriage or man and woman or God's order of redemption and the incarnation and the salvation won for us by Jesus. It looks like the storm is getting worse. And so we need to know that the Lord's Word stands and it doesn't change. It's the picture, and I, I wish I had a better picture, but it's the picture of a joyful shipwreck. <laughs> Can you, do you remember when St. Paul was sailing uh, they left Crete, and there was this huge storm, and they completely lost control. And the winds and the waves were tossing the boat this way and that. And like their only hope was that they were throwing stuff overboard, and they were, and they were hoping. And, I mean, it was just miserable. They didn't eat for something like 10 days. Is that right? They couldn't. I mean, they were just out to sea, and it was a disaster. And when things are that rough, the only thing that you're hoping for is that you might run into some solid ground somewhere. Now, the worse the storm is, the worse the crash will be, but the more of a relief it will be. So this ship that they're on crashed into Malta, and the ship was completely destroyed, but their lives were saved. This is the Lord's Word. This is the Lord's church. This is your home and your family. The Lord has, has put His Word as the immovable truth. And, and the more the storms are brewing, do you, do you realize that as, as hard as it's going to be, that the people on the boat, that the people out to sea are hoping and praying that somewhere there will be something that doesn't change. Someone who will tell them, That they are not who they think they are, but who God says they are. Someone who will say that that is right, and that is wrong, and that is true, and that is false, and that is beautiful, and that is ugly. As hard as it's going to be to crash into that truth, and we have to practice it. That's what repentance is. That we ourselves are crashing into the truth of the Lord's Word, and we're standing here to those who are out to sea and saying, here is the Here is the solid ground, and we're ready to scoop them up. Because on this unmoving island is the lighthouse of the cross, the brightness of the kingdom of God, the shining joy of the forgiveness of sins, the safe harbor of the blood of Jesus. And Jesus, who loves you, loves the world. He loves the people who hate Him. He loves the people who've never heard of Him. He loves the people who are ignoring Him. He loves the people who are pursuing their own self-identity. He loves them, and He dies for them, and He forgives them all of their sins, and He's calling them. So it might be today 
and next week and next year that there's more and more strangers that are sitting next to you in church and Bible class. That there's more and more strangers that the Lord brings into your conversation that you're working with and that you're going to school with. There's there's more and more confusion, and we rejoice in that because the Lord is plucking each one of us, oh, each one of us, from the midst of our sins into the kingdom of His light. So may God grant it by the Holy Spirit, which comes from the throne of Jesus, that we would rightly interpret the present time, which is the time of the Lord's mercy, which is the time of forgiveness of sins, which is the time of the kindness of Jesus. May God grant it for Christ's sake. Amen. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.